As I progress in my first year as SDOT director, I'll be working with our staff and stakeholders to bring forth big ball ideas on safety, mobility, equity, sustainability, placemaking, greening, and reducing the carbon emissions of our municipal fleet. Well, that's the director of the Seattle Department of Transportation, Greg Spots, at his swearing-in ceremony last October. As he said, he doesn't want to play small ball, some big ideas and big plans, and already some of them coming to pass in just the past few days, especially when it comes to expanding no-turn-on-red restrictions downtown. But what else is coming out of the top-to-bottom review of Seattle's Vision Zero plan? And hang on. Is there an update on the Seattle streetcar connector coming soon, too? Well, we are breaking it all down on a very special Patrons First bonus show here on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your coffee break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are mine all mine. And joining me is SDOT Director Greg Spots. And Greg, I really appreciate you joining me here and taking the time. I have been following your travels on Twitter. A recent trip to Bainbridge Island I saw. You have been moving. How many miles have you traveled over the past six plus months, would you say, as our transportation director? You know, I'm doing 11,000 steps a day. Um, wow. So that's a lot of, uh, of moving around. Um, I rely on the bus system and walking most of the time with a little bit of Lyft and Uber. And took my first ferry this weekend. That was super cool. Awesome. Awesome. And I know the, the listening tour continues. Been listening to a lot of communities out there. We're going to break that down in just a little bit. Thank you, Director Spots, for being here. Thanks to our background noise sponsor, City Grind Espresso, on the first floor of City Hall. Thanks also to our patrons, the Seattle News Views and Brews sticker campaign is rocking here. Greg, I'll make sure I, I send you one of these. They're in high demand, but I'll, I'll make sure I get one your way. Patrons, get your very own decal for just a $5 a month pledge. Thanks finally to Converge Media, our video partner for the podcast every week. Let's get rolling with Right Here, Right Now. Greg, let's get caught up on current events. You're taking action to expand no-turn-on-red restrictions to 40 more downtown intersections with a long-term plan to have this policy really in place citywide. What's going on here? Why does the city want to do this? So, you know, we made a map of um, all the places uh, where pedestrians get killed or seriously injured. And literally downtown looked like a mountain with this these vertical graphs on different uh, places within downtown. Like the entire greater downtown is so pedestrian dense that there's a lot of pedestrian vehicle conflicts. And there's a growing movement in cities to rethink right turn on red as something that may not be the most appropriate way to organize very dense urban environments. So uh, we decided to do um, 41 uh, intersections of no right on red uh, in downtown, and we're about three quarters of the way implementing that. I'm very excited about it because I walk to work from South Lake Union most of the time, and I often find that um, you know it's my turn to walk, but a driver who wants to make a right turn is actually staging in the crosswalk And often they don't get to make a right turn during the whole phase because there's a lot of traffic coming in the opposite direction. So um, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing how uh, pedestrians, both locals and tourists, uh, benefit from this increased amount of no turn on red in downtown. Yeah, and I know this is a a history in our state. It's interesting. It actually dates back to 1959. We've had this free right on red type of situation going on. I know in the 1970s, the history of this, it was kind of considered a fuel-saving measure. And I just wanted to bring this up on the larger scale here. I thought it was interesting, Greg, that in our state legislature this year, there was a bill talking about this, banning right turns on red. It didn't go anywhere. 
Lawmakers were concerned it could add delays to the commute. There were some questions about the data, too. Does the incident report specify if this crash occurred when a driver was turning on a red light? I just want to make sure you answer this piece of it, because there are some critics out there who say, wait a minute, you're going to make my commute longer with this. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, in the limited area of downtown, we felt very comfortable with the data that we had saying that um, if you manage uh, the the vehicle and pedestrian interaction more carefully, you're going to, to reduce the risk of crashes. Um, and also, you know, most of the people coming to downtown by car, they're only going to turn a few times, right? They're going to get off the freeway and then turn once or twice to get into where they're going to park. And I really don't think it's too much to ask for people to wait, you know, a few seconds. If that, you know, improves um, the safety and well-being of our, you know, grandparents and our kids who are walking around. Yeah, I gotcha. I know this is just one piece of what's going on with Vision Zero, which is Seattle's plan to eliminate traffic deaths and serious injuries on our city streets by the year 2030. And I know you're aware that since this policy was launched in 2015, the trends really unfortunately haven't been going in the right direction. 2022 was the deadliest year Seattle has had since 2006 when it comes to traffic fatalities. So I want to talk about what you're up against, what this top to bottom review was telling you about Vision Zero and what you're doing about it. Sure. So, you know, I didn't want to move to Seattle from L.A. and start making decisions before I understood all the neighborhoods of the communities and the people. But one thing that seems crystal clear from my deep dive into transportation in Seattle last summer was, you know, we're doing a lot of industry standard interventions in our streets that sound sensible, but the number of Seattleites killed and seriously injured in crashes is going up rather than down. And I felt we had to develop a hypothesis about why that was. And if, if you're, you know, if your existing plan isn't creating the desired result, then you need to do something different. So on my very first day on the job, September 7th, I commissioned a top to bottom review of our safety programs. Um, we had uh, two uh, staffers working full time on it. These are people who um, don't work on the safety program uh, in general. So it's kind of like a, a somewhat independent in-house arm's length review. I received um, that draft in January and shared it with the public in February, along with five early momentum actions that we could take. Uh, the report has more than 100 recommendations about how we can strengthen our safety programs. And I think it's a very powerful roadmap um, for positive change uh, within the organization and with all of our various partners who collaborate with us on street safety. Thank you. And I know there are some voices in Seattle who are telling you this review doesn't go far enough. I know Councilmember Morales said after it was released, changing signal timing, adding lead pedestrian intervals will not change the geometry of our streets. And as a result, will likely not change the behavior of users on these dangerous stretches of roadway. These actions are a start, but we need to fundamentally change our streets to address this crisis. How do you respond to that? That that push to do more, I guess, is what we're hearing. I think it's great. And I agree. You know, I mean, as I was preparing to take the job, I kept hearing about Aurora and Rainier, you know, these two very yeah. street highway feeling places where there's very fast traffic, multi lanes in each direction, very hard to cross the street, streets that often sometimes even feel like a barrier between two parts of the community, you know, um, and, and and it's clear that there's a need to really rethink both of those. Those are both like projects involving tens of millions of dollars, series of projects along those lengthy corridors. Um, and, and that will come into focus over time. We're also trying to do things today uh, that don't require big chunks of outside funding. 
But speaking of outside funding, it was a really fortuitous thing that Mm -hmm. as I was reviewing this draft of the top to bottom review in January, we found out that we've won a $25 million grant from U.S. Department of Transportation to do more than 100 safe Mm -hmm. streets interventions. And I know that Councilmember Morales and other advocates are very pleased to to find out that more than 90 percent of those interventions are in historically underserved communities. So it was just so exciting right. that as we have a roadmap for positive change, a whole bunch of new money came in to help enable that change. I was very proud of the staff for successfully competing for that award. I believe that application went in about a month after I joined the agency last fall. Okay. And there was another piece to it too, because I know the Federal Department of Transportation uh, gave some dollars as well to help with light rail crossings. This is something you're working on with Sound Transit. Can you touch on that too? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of concern about the interaction of people, cars, and the light rail when it's at grade, you know, in the Rainier Valley. And um, we in Sound Transit together got a $2 million Smart Cities grant um, to like look at you know, could we have the sort of traffic signals actually be able to detect there's a pedestrian here, there's a cyclist here, there's cars stacking mm-hmm. up here in a much more sophisticated way than the sort of loop detectors that we embed in the pavement. Um, and this grant and other efforts are, are all part of a larger, you know, deep collaboration that, you know, the Sound Transit CEO, Julie Tim and I want to have on like improving safety and the, the transit rider experience. Um, along these uh, at-grade uh, stations. Um, and I use them. You know, I, I happen to yeah. find Columbia City a really fun place to hang out and eat. And mm-hmm. I like this coffee place and record store down there. And so I, I'm often, like, using that station. And, um, you know, uh, we really do need to make sure that it's easy to, like, cross to get to the platform, cross and get off the platform to where you're going. Thank you. And there was one more piece I wanted to make sure I highlighted with you. There's work within SDOT right now to have the city traffic engineer kind of turn into a a different role there, a chief safety officer. I I wanted to talk about that, why you're doing that, because I think that's a part of this puzzle too. For sure. You know, a number of the recommendations in the review talked about how sometimes it's confusing figuring out who's in charge of adding safety features to an existing project. Like let's say we're resurfacing some streets. There's kind of an automatic way to add curb ramps But what about the other safety features that could make it safer for walking, rolling and taking transit on that corridor? How do those get incorporated? And there was also a a recommendation that sometimes we do an intervention, but there could be a follow up to make it better. There could be some like data collection and follow up to make it better. And these recommendations kind of pointed to maybe a little bit of disconnect or drift within the organization and you know, for a brief time in my career, I was a management consultant. We always talked about aligning authority, responsibility, and accountability. And so I yeah. developed an idea to do that, to elevate the city traffic engineer as the chief safety officer and have him chair a Vision Zero committee of the department directors so that, um, you know, Venu Namani, the city traffic engineer, will now report to my deputy, Francisca Stefan. Uh, rather than be another layer down in the organization. And he will chair this very high-powered committee of folks. When they decide to uh, do something, everybody in that room has the power and the staff and the money uh, to get those things done. So uh, I'm really looking at kind of taking great people and putting them in the right framework to succeed. And I actually believe that Venu Namani could be the most progressive safety-oriented 
city traffic engineer in the United States if I just give him the resources and the support that he needs. Thank you for that. And you touched on this earlier with resources, making sure the dollars are there. But I think we've also heard from you, too, this idea of a fast and flavorful concept. And I wanted to touch on this because I think the feedback you're hearing from the community is, hey, get this done and get this done quickly. But at the same time, you don't want to lose the the flavor of the project, the real gist of it. Can you touch on that ethic, Greg, and what that means? For sure. So, you know, around Christmas time, I was sort of reflecting on you know, the first maybe 70 listening tour stops that I did, walking, biking, and riding transit with community members, and also thinking through the budget process. Because, you know, in the middle of the budget process, there was a negative revision to some revenue sources. And that was very sobering. Like, I'm the new guy, but there's not going to be a lot of new money, per se, in the regular city budget to launch new things. So I came up with this idea for the staff of theming 2023 around delivery, fast and flavorful in concert with our values. And the idea is that, you know, a lot of the community tells us sometimes it takes a really long time for you guys to implement a project. And then sometimes there's like important details that that really we're going to make that project sing that maybe don't get included or don't make it into the final project. And I thought if I press the staff to deliver in a more timely way, I don't want to give them the out of delivering a project where all the best parts were sanded off, you know? So I'm asking them right. to deliver fast and flavorful. And there's been some very interesting meetings uh, in the team. Like what does Greg mean by flavorful, you know? And I actually think that's a good thing. <laughs> well, you're a foodie. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, staff is taking ownership. And there was even a couple whiteboard sessions where everybody put up a word they would use to describe what flavorful is in their job. And it, it means, you know, delivering holistic multi-benefit projects that, you know, really bring to life um, emerging best practices in street design globally. I'm excited to learn more about that and and where those flavors go throughout the city. But there's another piece I wanted to touch on with you here. The Seattle streetcar. Can Seattle finally connect its South Lake Union line and its First Hill line? That's next on Now Hear This. Okay, podcast fans, I'm going to take you back to days of yore when former Mayor Jenny Durkin gave her State of the City address in 2019. She had placed the Seattle Streetcar Connector Project on hold just a few months before this speech with concerns over rising costs and low ridership for the system. She was pushing for $88 million at the time to get this project back on track. Here's what she said. We also have the chance to connect communities with a unified streetcar. And that's why I look forward to working with you, council members and stakeholders, to see how we address our current construction and operating cost challenges and how we move forward on our next generation transit. Well, Greg, the streetcar connector has been part of a political battle for many years in Seattle. Mayor Harrell kept it alive with funding for a study in last year's budget. You've promoted a new way of looking at this project. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, something I can bring occasionally is sort of the stranger eyes to Seattle, you know, coming from another place. And I'm really a student of like how cities work and how the streets uh, play into other dynamics in the city. And, um, you know, I took a walk of the the missing streetcar segment from Pioneer Square uh, northbound up uh, First Avenue uh, past the market. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think I took Stewart over to, um, you know, uh, to where the South Lake Union streetcar begins on Westlake. Mm -hmm. And that afternoon, this was in late September, I felt like I saw something. I saw like a linear entertainment corridor where all three streetcar segments could be like this hop on, hop off experience Uh, to go to restaurants, bars, clubs, uh, cultural events. 
um, really hip indie retail. I thought that, you know, that that streetcar connection could be so much more than just a way to get from point A to point B. And I even imagined like an app, a streetcar app where you could pay five bucks for all day hop on hop off privileges. And the app would tell you about like hundreds of different attractions uh, in all these neighborhoods along the streetcar. And you wouldn't even know what a, need to know what an Orca card is. Like you could tell mm-hmm. cruise ship passengers, download the streetcar app, pay your five bucks and almost anything you'd want to do, you can get to, you know, via the streetcar. I guess it, it sounds like a very interesting idea, but still this idea of how to pay for it. I, I know that's been a struggle for the council over the past decade plus in talking about this. I know there were concerns over the construction and how the tracks were laid out, et cetera. There was some sizing issue for those tracks and the cars, et cetera. Are we past that point? Do you feel comfortable about coming forward with a project here that would have a budget that the, the council would be able to swallow? I do feel comfortable. And, you know, I think... In an era of remote work, right? Seattle's the number two city in the share of people working remotely right now. Number one is Washington, D.C., and it's kind of an outlier because the federal workforce hasn't really come back. So Mm, outside of D.C., Seattle's number one in remote work. And if we want to have like a vite of an economically and culturally and socially vital downtown, then we're going to need to have some catalytic projects. And so I see the streetcar as an asset. It's 100% designed, it's environmentally cleared, and it's eligible for nine figures worth of federal funding. Other cities are starting from scratch. You dream up such a project, you can spend five years, you know, developing a design, doing your environmental clearance. We've already done all that. So I see it as an incredible asset for us um, as we kind of rethink the return on investment as a much broader, you know, investment in, vitality, community, small businesses, minority-owned businesses, all the different kinds of arts, culture, and food that we have in Seattle. Um, It can be so much more than a way to get like one mile from one place to another. Got it. And I know too, I just remember this chatter for so many years, Greg, in covering this story, uh, this idea that, oh, it's redundant. We don't need another system right there. And and I wanted to talk about that because sometimes redundancy is a good thing. Sometimes people say it's not the right investment. Can you talk about that issue? Because there are some ways that people can link up between these two streetcar systems existing right now. Why would having this cultural connector, as you're calling it, be a better idea? You know, a streetcar is uniquely legible. And I noticed this on that day, December 23rd, where we had the ice storm. You know, it was a very unusual day in the region where the bus system never started. And we were able to get the streetcar going at 2 p.m. and the buses um, didn't start till a few hours later. So I decided to get on that first streetcar run. And immediately people started climbing on board. Like there wasn't information available that the streetcar was now running. They just saw it coming and were like, oh, hallelujah, it's impossible to be a pedestrian with these icy sidewalks. I'm going to get on the streetcar. There's something about that fixed guideway of the rail and the brightly colored streetcar and how frequent the stops are. You don't need to like figure out, wait, which bus number is this, where it's going? You know, it's like um, it really sets a marker for being able to just kind of make a spontaneous snap decision to hop on. And I think that's why it lends itself to this kind of catalytic ability um, to to cause other folks to invest. And that's another thing, right? People don't invest because you put a bus line somewhere because you could put it somewhere else later. But when you put tracks in the ground, um, it often creates a lot of economic development and the 
The most successful streetcar case studies all cite the sort of investment that it has catalyzed. And so I'm trying to really frame it up as a way to help small businesses invest back in downtown. Thank you. Thank you for that. I wanted to switch gears, if I could, ever so slightly with you, Greg, and talk about the topic of sustainability and where that intersects with transportation. You just got back from London not too long ago where you spoke at the Fleet Vision International Conference. And from what I understand, your comments were electrifying. So tell us about what you're talking about. Sure. You know, when I was in Los Angeles, our agency had more than a thousand vehicles and I was sort of leading the charge on reducing carbon emissions and air pollution from those vehicles. And uh, I want to do the same thing even bigger um, in Seattle. Um, You know, the talk that I gave in London was called Right Size, Then Electrify. And I wanted to like kind of lift up a provocative thesis that before you go just take like a medium duty truck or heavy duty truck, that you have in your city fleet and go find a battery electric version, you should consider that there's going to be a shortage of lithium, of charging resources, and physical real estate space to park those heavy trucks while they're charging. And so why not take a fresh look at the task you're trying to accomplish and ask, could that task be accomplished with some smaller vehicles? Because if you electrify those, you're mitigating those three different, like, you know, kind of choke points on getting things going. So that was very exciting to be part of that conversation. Um, And, you know, I'm hoping to partner with other city departments on a range of pilots um, using lighter uh, plug-in vehicles to show how we can um, reduce the environmental impact of city operations. That's really interesting. And I I just, looking at this topic a a writ large here, Greg, this idea of transportation and sustainability, I think those two pieces are inextricably linked. Can you talk about this issue at a, on a larger sense? This goes beyond electrifying the fleet, I think. Yeah, you know, a year ago, I gave a different talk about the carbon emissions of transportation in California. Hmm. And the idea was that California has been wildly successful in reducing the carbon emissions of electricity generation. Like there's some times of day in California where renewables almost make fossil fuels unnecessary. But the carbon emissions of transportation in both California and Washington state have hardly moved at all. It turns out transportation is a much harder area for us to reduce carbon emissions, maybe because it involves a lot of individual choices, right? Individual choices about what vehicles people are choosing to use, individual choices about different trips that people are making. And so if we wanna further reduce carbon emissions, we're gonna have to find a new angle on reducing the carbon emissions of transportation. And I was just so delighted to be part of uh, Mayor Harrell's new executive order on reducing the carbon emissions of transportation. And um, uh, I helped insert into that um, a provision about these pilots for um, zero emissions fleet and uh, drop in renewable fuels with our fleet. So um, it's a very exciting time. uh, And I think uh, Seattleites are really passionate about very much agreed. And uh, Greg Spots here, the director of Seattle Department of Transportation, has been talking a little bit about his past in Los Angeles. And coming up, we're going to get a little bit further into that past and his advice for me in my burgeoning music career. Listen up. That's next on Transportation Talk. Well, Greg Spots, as some people may know, before he jumped into the public policy world, he founded a music talent management business. And Greg, you represented recording artists, made albums for talents like Seal, Goo Goo Dolls, Jewel, R.E.M., Widespread Panic, huge points for that one, Alanis Morissette, an awesome list here. 
So I'm thinking I should get your opinion on one of the biggest music releases of 2022. It was on YouTube, so you know it's legit. It's a song I put together with my friend Mark Proudfoot, Can't Keep West Seattle Down. Here's a clip. You might have heard we got a little problem with the West Seattle Bridge. They had to shut it down that road to downtown, but just back it up a smidge. Before you think about crying or putting on a mean old frown, everyone remember you just can't keep West Seattle down. Okay, so my two questions to you, Greg, are these. When are you booking my world tour and how many millions of dollars are coming my way? You know, maybe we can have you perform on the Culture Connector when it, you know, when it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the video. Um, and, you know, I, I'm learning a lot about the West Seattle spirit. There's so many like rockers over there. You know, there's it's a great place to buy records or a guitar. Um, yep. And, you know, some famous rockers are over there. But the part yep. that really surprised me is you were starting out on this ukulele, you know, and then all of a sudden the like funky worm keyboards kicked in from like early 80s electrophone. <laughs> and I'm a synth player. Uh, and I actually have played a few gigs where I got to do funky worm, funky worm keyboards on the keytar, you know, the strap on keyboard controller. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I haven't been seen with a keytar um, as recently as maybe five years ago on a little stage in New York City. Wow. We're, we're going to have to figure out a way to do this jam at some point, Greg, because that, uh, that is great news that you're handing me there. And again, I, I don't know where the world tour goes, but uh, I know it always starts in West Seattle. This, this, this area of the city definitely has a lot of pride. Uh, there was someone on YouTube who said, wait, I thought you were Eddie Vedder. That was not. It was me. Uh, my ukulele playing is actually very poor, but uh, it worked out great for the video. How about that? Uh, well, Greg, I just wanted to say thanks a lot for taking part in the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Let's take it to the bridge. All right. <laughs> sounds good, man. All right. There we go. SDOT Director Greg Spots. Thank you to you. Thanks to everybody listening to Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where you can always find out what's going on in local politics. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. Please find Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon and show your support there. Thanks for watching on Converge Media, too. We'll see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2023.